Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This lecture will be a continuation of the adult reconstruction lecture series. In this lecture, we will focus on primary total hip arthroplasty. We will break down this talk into approaches, including the pros and cons of each, factors that play a role in stability, ways to get in trouble or stay out of trouble, and post-operative rehabilitation. We'll have subsequent lectures focusing on hip resurfacing, revision arthroplasty, arthrodesis, and some of the common complications coming up. So let's get started with our talk on primary total hip arthroplasty. Let's begin by discussing some common approaches. Standard approaches for total hip arthroplasty include the posterolateral, the direct lateral, the direct anterior, and anterolateral. The approach of choice is typically dictated by the surgeon's preference. Patient-specific factors, including prior incisions, obesity, the degree of deformity, and the risk of subsequent dislocation must also be considered. Let's begin with the posterolateral approach, which is the most common approach for primary and revision hip arthroplasty. There is no true internervous plane. It involves splitting of the gluteus maximus and detaching of the piriformis and short external rotator muscles. The hip is dislocated posteriorly. Care must be taken to protect the sciatic nerve during this approach. The posterolateral approach allows for excellent exposure of the femur and acetabulum. However, it is thought that dislocation rates may be higher as it requires violating the posterior capsule and posterior hip musculature. Following surgery, hip precautions, including no flexion past 90 degrees, adduction past the midline, or extreme external rotation need to be obeyed. We like to emphasize elbows between the knees for patients when sitting on the toilet, and patients need to be cognizant when getting in and out of a car, as these are common scenarios when they will sustain a hip dislocation. The direct lateral, or Harding approach, is less commonly used. It involves splitting of the gluteus medius, innervated by the superior gluteal nerve, and splitting of the vastus lateralis, innervated by the femoral nerve. Patients can be positioned supine or lateral. Remember not to carry the incision greater than 3 to 5 centimeters above the greater trochanter within the gluteus medius or you risk damaging the superior gluteal nerve. Some studies have shown this to have the lowest dislocation rate following total hip arthroplasty. There is a concern, however, for the development of a postoperative limp since the abductor musculature is violated. The direct anterior approach has become very popular among surgeons in recent years and hospitals wishing to advertise on billboards. It utilizes the Smith-Peterson approach, which is an interval between the femoral nerve and superior gluteal nerve. Superficial dissection between the sartorius and tensor fascia lata and deep dissection is between the rectus femoris and gluteus medius. The lateral femoral cutaneous nerve is at risk during the superficial dissection and is commonly seen directly within the internervous plane. The ascending branch of the lateral femoral circumflex artery must also be ligated during this approach. Advantages include that this approach has shown a decreased dislocation rate compared to the posterior approach and there is no violation of the hip abductor complex. Disadvantages include that there is a steep learning curve. This approach is difficult in obese patients secondary to a large panis, which may also complicate wound healing after surgery. Exposing the femoral neck may also be difficult and many surgeons require a special table to aid in this. Furthermore, a lateral femoral cutaneous nerve neuroma can be quite painful if the nerve gets injured. Finally, there is the anterolateral approach or Watson-Jones approach. There is no internervous plane, however there is an intermuscular plane. This approach splits between the tensor fascia lata and gluteus medius. This is also felt to have a lower dislocation rate than a posterior approach since the posterior capsule and musculature are not violated. However, again there is a risk of postoperative limp secondary to violation of the abductor musculature. Regardless of the initial dissection, particularly challenging cases may require a trochanteric osteotomy. 
This is useful during revision arthroplasty to aid in femoral stem removal and in cases of severe deformity secondary to dysplasia. However, there is a risk of postoperative nonunion and abductor weakness. No matter what approach is used, proper visualization is important for a successful outcome. If a minimally invasive approach does not allow for full visualization, it may need to be abandoned for a more extensile approach. Furthermore, if an intraoperative fracture occurs during implant insertion, the approach may also need to be extended so the fracture can be fully assessed. Alright, so now we've performed our approach and we're ready for implant insertion. What factors play a role in ensuring optimal hip stability? Well, before we begin that, how often do total hips dislocate? In a primary hip, it's about 1-2% to of cases, and in a revision setting, it's about 5-7%. to Elderly patients, particularly those undergoing a revision for a failed open reduction internal fixation of a femoral neck fracture, are at the highest dislocation risk category. Reasons for this are thought to be muscular weakness as well as cognitive decline and inability to follow post-operative hip precautions. Other risk factors for dislocation include the posterior lateral approach, a smaller head size, revision surgery, obesity and alcoholism, and neuromuscular disorders. Females also seem to have a higher risk of dislocation than males. Although we don't have control over all patient factors, we do have control over component selection and surgical technique, which will help decrease the rate of dislocation. So first, let's talk about component design. One of the reasons we pick a large femoral head is to increase the head-neck ratio. An increased head-neck ratio allows for greater range of motion prior to impingement of the neck on the acetabular component. This is also the reason that a skirted neck component this is also the reason that skirted neck components are frowned upon. The skirted neck will decrease the head to neck ratio, decreasing the range of motion prior to impingement. When the neck impinges on the acetabular component, it cantilevers the head out of the acetabulum. Furthermore, a larger head component will increase the excursion distance. The excursion distance is defined as the amount of translation the head can tolerate prior to dislocation. A larger head is seated deeper within the acetabulum and therefore has a larger excursion distance. The acetabular liner also plays a role in stability. An acetabular liner hood decreases the primary arc range of motion. However, if the hood is placed posteriorly, it may increase joint stability by increasing the excursion distance. If soft tissue tension does not seem adequate, a lateralized liner can also be used to increase the offset and thereby increasing soft tissue tension. The takeaway point of component design's influence on stability is to maximize the head-neck ratio and use a larger head to increase the excursion distance. Now that we've picked our appropriate implant, let's talk about the optimal position in which to insert it. For the acetabular component, the ideal position is in 20 degrees of antiversion, plus minus 10 degrees, and 45 degrees of abduction, plus minus 10 degrees as well. Less than ideal implant position can lead to several complications. Excessive retroversion can lead to a posterior dislocation. On the contrary, excessive antiversion can lead to an anterior dislocation. Excessive abduction, or a vertical cup, can lead to edge loading causing eccentric polyethylene wear as well as instability. And with too much adduction, or a horizontal cup, the patient may experience impingement and flexion and possibly an inferior hip dislocation. The femoral stem also has ideal parameters. It should be placed in approximately 10 to 15 degrees of antiversion. It makes sense conceptually that excessive retroversion of the stem will predispose a patient to a posterior hip dislocation, while excessive antiversion of the stem will place the patient at risk for an anterior hip dislocation. 
Ideal soft tissue tension is reestablished by restoring the offset of the hip. This is defined as the distance from the center of the femoral head to the axis of the femoral shaft. The abductor complex is the key to hip stability. In order to restore the abductor tension, it is vital to recreate the normal hip center of rotation, the femoral head offset, and the femoral neck length. With appropriate soft tissue tension, there is decreased impingement and decreased joint reaction force. With reduced hip offset or decreased soft tissue tension, the patient will have a weakened abductor complex. This leads to an increased joint reaction force, and the patient may walk with a Trendelenburg gait secondary to a weakened abductor complex. They will also have increased instability and increased risk for subsequent dislocation. If after trial implantation, you notice decreased soft tissue tension, there are several steps which may help you to restore the soft tissue tension. You can trial an increased femoral neck length, an increased femoral head length, a lateralized acetabular liner, or a trochanteric advancement should all else fail. Finally, it is important to take into account the soft tissue function as it also plays a role in stability. Three systems affect the quality of tissue and function of the musculature surrounding the hip. Patients with central nervous system abnormalities, peripheral nervous system abnormalities, or less than ideal musculature are at an increased risk for subsequent dislocation events. They should be counseled to this ahead of time that they are at a higher risk and post-operative precautions should be reinforced. Meticulous surgical technique needs to be performed to minimize the risk of dislocation in these high-risk patients. Let's move on now from instability and focus on some of the techniques with acetabular component position. As mentioned previously, the acetabular component should be placed in 45 degrees of abduction, plus minus 10 degrees, and 20 degrees of antiversion, plus minus 10 degrees as well. After placing the acetabular component using press fit technique, you feel that it is not stable enough, or after line to line technique, you wish to reinforce the fixation with screws, where are the safest place for screw placement? Well, the acetabulum can be divided into quadrants, drawing a line from the anterior superior iliac spine down to the center of the acetabulum, and then a line perpendicular to this, you can divide the acetabulum into four quadrants. The safe zone is the posterior superior zone. Again, the safe zone is the posterior superior zone. This is the ideal place for supplemental screw placement. The neurovascular structures at risk are the sciatic and superior gluteal nerve and vessels. The caution zone or posterior inferior zone is okay with screws less than 20 millimeters in length. The structures at risk in the posterior inferior zone are the sciatic nerve and inferior gluteal nerve and vessels, as well as the internal pudendal nerve and vessels. The anterior zone should be off limits for screw placement. The anterior inferior zone is also called the danger zone and has the obturator nerve, artery, and vein at risk. The anterior superior zone is the zone of death and it has the external iliac vessels at risk. Let's finish off the lecture by talking about rehabilitation. When it comes to elective joint arthroplasty, rehabilitation should begin prior to the initiation of surgery. This starts with patient education. Formal preoperative physical therapy has not been shown to improve postoperative outcomes. However, patient education in terms of what to expect the day of surgery and how a typical postoperative course progresses helps to alleviate any anxiety and manage patient expectations. Many surgeons prefer regional anesthesia over general anesthesia along with periarticular multimodal pain injection cocktails. Multimodal pain medication is imperative for controlling postoperative pain. Hip precautions are dependent upon the surgical approach used. With posterior lateral approach, again, the patient should avoid flexion past 90 degrees, internal rotation, and adduction. 
With anterolateral and the direct anterior approach, the patient should avoid extension, external rotation, and adduction. Alright, that concludes our brief overview of primary total hip arthroplasty. This section, though short, contains several highly testable topics and ideas, so it is vital to really drive these concepts home. In the next lecture, we will discuss revision hips, hip resurfacing, and arthrodesis. As always, please check back frequently for any additions and modifications to this lecture. Thanks for listening.